This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now, your host, Andrew Foyce. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on the Federal News Network. My name is Andy Foyce, the host of this show and the chair of the Administrative Conference, which everyone knows fondly as ACUS. ACUS, if you're not familiar with the agency, is an independent federal agency, the mission of which simply is to make government work better, uh, specifically by making recommendations to improve federal agency administrative procedures. This episode will take us between the lines of the important and timely issue known as the Chevron Deference Doctrine after the United States Supreme Court case of the same name, Chevron versus the National Resources Defense Council and the slew of cases that came after it. I know not all of our listeners are lawyers, uh, so don't fret. We're going to make this as understandable as we can. The Chevron Doctrine just means in so many words that uh, when do courts, when they're trying to decide a case involving whether a government agency was legally permitted to make a rule, to do what it does, should the courts and when do the courts give deference to the agency's own interpretation of the law if that law is unclear? And in the 35 years since the doctrine has established itself, The United States Supreme Court has decided over a 100 cases applying it. It is arguably the most important and controversial doctrine in administrative law. We will look at the case and the doctrine, how it works, how it developed, its strengths and weaknesses, how agencies themselves see the doctrine, and then finally what cases are currently pending in the Supreme Court that may affect the um, longstanding law. Let me be clear up front, as I always do, that only official ACUS recommendations that the Assembly passed can be attributed to ACUS as a position. Everything else uh, that we talk about cannot. So to provide answers to some of the questions I raised about the Chevron uh, deference doctrine, we will be joined by three highly accomplished experts in the field. And the professor who literally wrote the book about them, uh, another professor to talk about the Supreme Court cases, and a general counsel to a federal agency. Our first guest, Professor Tom Merrill, is a nationally recognized expert in administrative law who, as I mentioned, published uh, a book last year called The Chevron Doctrine, Its Rise and Fall, and the Future of the Administrative State, and he'll be discussing that. He is a professor at Columbia Law School and is also taught at Yale and Northwestern. He was a clerk to United States Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. Professor Merrill, can you please start us off by identifying what the issue at stake is in the Chevron Doctrine? Sure. The Chevron Doctrine is probably the uh, most uh, widely cited decision in administrative law in the last uh, uh, three or four decades. And it has been thought to govern the standard that courts should apply in deciding whether or not agencies are correctly interpreting the law that uh, Congress has laid down for the agencies to administer. So um, Chevron It's been thought to give agencies a fair amount of deference or discretion in deciding how they interpret these statutes. The case before the court, uh, Loper Bright Enterprises and its companion Relentless uh, Inc. 
basically asked the court to overturn Chevron and uh, and presumably return uh, greater authority to the courts in deciding what these statutes mean uh, rather than letting or allowing the courts to defer to agency interpretations. I see. Well, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court pending cases with our, our next guest after after these two segments, uh, Professor Gluck from from uh, your school, uh, Yale. So let's start with some history. Uh, what was the state of the law on this issue before Chevron was decided? It was kind of a jumble. The court had um, several different strands of uh, precedent that addressed the question of how courts should review agency interpretations of the statutes that they uh, implement. Some of these uh, precedents, uh, the oldest precedents, focused on whether the agency had been consistent in its interpretation of the statute. So there was a kind of canon of interpretation that said that consistent and long-standing interpretations by agencies are entitled to weight or sometimes great weight uh, by reviewing courts. There was also some cases, uh, some that preceded the adoption of the Administrative Procedure Act in 1946 and a larger number that postdated the APA that said that, you know, courts should give uh, weight or deference to agency interpretations if they are reasonable. And there wasn't a lot of elaboration on what that meant, but there was a line of cases that said that. There was another line of cases that uh, dealt more narrowly with situations in which the agency didn't have any uh, legal authority to impose sanctions against people under a statute, but nevertheless had some kind of enforcement authority in which the court had said that these interpretations should be followed by federal courts if they're persuasive. And the court had laid down a a multitude of factors about the thoroughgoing analysis of the agency and whether it uh, had uh, explained itself thoroughly and so forth. There was a small handful of cases in which the court had uh, been confronted with uh, statutes in which, which Congress had expressly delegated authority to agencies to interpret particular statutory terms. Uh, And the court had said that uh, when that happened, the court should accept the agency interpretation as long as it was not arbitrary and capricious. So you had, you know, sort of collection of different doctrines that courts could pick and choose among in deciding these uh, issues. And many uh, observers, including some judges, said it was a mess. It was kind of incoherent uh, and that something uh, should be done about this. And uh, I take it something was done. So let's move on to Chevron itself. Uh, can you tell us about the case before it developed into a doctrine? Yeah, Chevron is a very interesting phenomenon in that the case that the court decided in 1984, it was a shorthanded court. Only six justices were participating. A bunch of others were ill or otherwise recused. The case itself was not regarded at the time as being a big deal. Uh, it was uh, a kind of a routine uh, administrative law controversy that the court was uh, felt it had to resolve. And only later did it become a kind of a doctrine of great significance. But the case itself involved a, a dispute over the meaning of the term stationary source that appeared in uh, three different sections of the Clean Air Act, authorizing the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to regulate emissions from stationary sources. The D.C. Circuit had adopted different approaches to interpreting that the meaning of that term stationary source in, in these different uh, sections of the act, uh, which uh, caused a great deal of confusion and seemed to be um, more reflective of the D.C. Circuit's policies that, rather than the agency's policies. So the court granted the case to sort of sort this all out and try to cl- clarify whether the agency had discretion to interpret stationary sources more narrowly than the D.C. Circuit thought 
it had authority to do, at least under some of these statutory provisions. Professor, when and how did that case turn into a doctrine? It started turning into a doctrine quite quickly uh, in the D.C. Circuit. A controversy was pending in the D.C. Circuit uh, over uh, when EPA could recall cars for having catalytic converters uh, that did not last for the full useful life of the vehicle. And Judge Patricia Wald, who was in favor of giving EPA broad discretion over this matter and was uh, assigned to write the opinion for the court for the in-bank D.C. Circuit in this particular case, I guess the word seized is not too inaccurate. She seized upon the, the Chevron case, which was only a few months old, and said that it announced a new standard of review for courts to apply in reviewing agency interpretations. And she focused on an early paragraph in the Chevron decision, which said that courts should always ask two questions when reviewing agency legal interpretations. First, should ask whether or not Congress had spoken directly to the precise question at issue. And secondly, if the answer was no, there was no direct answer from Congress, the court should ask whether or not the agency's interpretation was reasonable. And if it was reasonable, the court should accept the agency's interpretation. So Judge Wald basically characterized this uh, as a new standard of review. My own view is that the court did not intend to articulate a new standard of review in the Chevron case, but Judge Wald said that they did. And she applied it in that case. And then it was off and running. The D.C. Circuit thereafter increasingly applied the Chevron so-called two-step approach to reviewing agency uh, interpretive questions uh, in increasing numbers in the next several years. Uh, um, Professor, we've got to leave it there for, uh, for now. We'll come right back and finish your thought. Uh, we're speaking with Professor Tom Merrill of Columbia University, who wrote the book on the Chevron Doctrine. And you are listening to the Federal News Network. The show is Between the Lines. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. We will continue our conversation with Professor Tom Merrill, author of the book on the Chevron Doctrine called The Chevron Doctrine, Its Rise and Fall and the Future of the Administrative State. Anyone interested in learning more about this subject should definitely pick up that book. So, uh, Professor, at the end of the first segment, we were talking about how the Chevron case became a doctrine, and you talked about the uh, Judge Wald in the D.C. Circuit developing the uh, two-step famous process in Chevron. Um, how, how did this case then, um, after Judge Wald, uh, germinate and eventually become a doctrine? Yeah, it's a very interesting phenomenon. The, we usually think of uh, administrative law and other types of law sort of starting at the Supreme Court and then filtering back down to the lower courts. But in this particular case, the doctrine was basically uh, enunciated by the D.C. Circuit and it filtered up to the Supreme Court. And it happened somewhat gradually. In the year after Chevron was decided, the case was relied upon by the court or cited by the court only once out of 19 cases where it conceivably could have been cited. Uh, but then gradually uh, it began to be cited uh, more frequently in the in the following years. Some people speculate that this is a reflection of the influence of the law clerks who clerk a sort of disproportionate number of Supreme Court law clerks clerk on the D.C. Circuit. And so they would be familiar with this new doctrine. And then they got um, elevated to be clerks on the Supreme Court. And they thought it was natural that this doctrine would apply at that level as well. I think a more dramatic influence was uh, Justice uh, Antonin Scalia's nomination and confirmation to be a justice of the Supreme Court in 1986. 
a couple years after Chevron was released by the Supreme Court. Justice Scalia wasted no time after he joined the Supreme Court to begin a campaign in separate opinions, primarily, to say that Chevron should be the exclusive basis for reviewing uh, federal administrative agency decisions. And he sort of picked a fight with Justice Stevens, who had been the author of Chevron, in which he sort of uh, chastised Stevens, uh, sort of remarkably, chastised Stevens for failing to understand his own decision. So there was this debate between Stevens and Scalia about the meaning of Chevron, inconclusive as it might seem. But then uh, finally, a number of justices sort of weighed in on, on Justice Scalia's side, and the lower courts, for reasons that are not entirely clear, this was only four out of nine justices, took this as a signal that Scalia had won the debate with Stevens. And so Chevron sort of took off not only in the D.C. Circuit, but in a number of circuit courts around the country. So the two-step approach was initially applied by the Supreme Court in one decision in 1986. But by the early 1990s, uh, virtually every justice, except for, uh, interestingly enough, Stevens and Brennan, uh, had applied the two-step approach in one or more cases involving uh, judicial review of agency action. So by this time, the lower courts sort of began to conclude that, yes, the Supreme Court has now uh, endorsed the Chevron doctrine, this two-step approach that the D.C. Circuit uh, basically engineered, and it, it spread throughout the circuits, and eventually the Supreme Court also applied it in a broader and broader range of cases until it became a sort of universal metric for reviewing agency interpretations throughout all the different agencies of the federal government. Well, we love Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia at, at ACUS, because uh, you may or may not know, Professor, that before he became a judge, Justice Scalia was uh, the chair of the uh, administrative conference. He uh, had the job that I have. And, and uh, in fact, in our offices, uh, the conference room is named after him. We have, a, we have a plaque in front of the conference room. So, okay, we've got a two-step process. Um, and a uh, case named Mead um, added something more, what uh, Professor Hickman uh, described as step zero. So what happened there? Yeah, well, as time went on, more and more issues arose about, uh, you know, what exactly is the meaning of this two-step approach of Chevron? And uh, circuit conflicts began to proliferate uh, in the lower courts. Particularly difficult issue was created, it essentially created by the court itself, because the court continued to apply a different standard of review in some contexts, particularly contexts involving the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, which was the older standard that just simply asked whether the agency's interpretation was persuasive under multiple factual approach. This was called the Skidmore standard, uh, named after a case called Skidmore versus Swift and Company that was decided uh, actually just a few years before the APA was adopted in 1946. So the court had now two doctrines that it was applying Chevron for most purposes and then Skidmore for a few purposes. Uh, and this was, of course, quite confusing to people. So the court felt obliged to clarify the situation. And ultimately, it, it attempted to do this in a case called uh, United States versus Mead Corporation that was decided in the year 2001. And Mead was interesting. It was an eight to one decision by the court. Uh, the opinion was written by Justice Souter, who really had not weighed in on these uh, administrative law controversies very much at all. But Justice Souter's opinion was sort of an attempt to bring together various different justices who had articulated slightly different ideas about the jurisprudential status of Chevron and what exactly the two-step approach means and doesn't mean and when it applies and when it doesn't apply. 
and the gist of the Souter opinion, it's hard to summarize the opinion because it was uh, long and, and somewhat unclear in many respects, but the gist was that Chevron should apply when the agency is acting with the force of law, as he put it. In other words, the agency is either issuing a regulation that's legally binding on the parties uh, that it regulates, and it makes this interpretation as a sort of a, a step in the course of issuing such a notice and comment regulation, or the agency is adjudicating an issue involving the parties, which will result in a binding order that directs parties to do one thing or another, and the interpretation flows out of such an adjudication. So the idea was that if the agency adopts one of these two procedural modes that results in uh, legally binding orders or or rules that Chevron would apply, but if, if the agency just simply was offering some kind of guidance to the parties, to the regulated uh, industry, it, it would default back to the Skidmore standard. So that was the gist of, this, of the uh, Souter opinion in the Meade case. Justice Scalia wrote a very emphatic dissent. He was still at this time in the mode of being the main champion of the Chevron doctrine. He said that this was a disastrous, evulsive decision that was going to produce uh, great confusion and uncertainty, and it was a big step backwards. He said Chevron should apply to any agency interpretation which is authoritative, uh, meaning that it was endorsed by high-level officials officials in the agency um, as being uh, correct. So Meade was a big dust-up, but seemed to cut back uh, rather significantly on the full scope of the Chevron doctrine under the Souter opinion, at least. I see. All right. One last question then uh, for you, Professor. Throughout your book, you identify and apply four values uh, that uh, you suggest should uh, be used to assess how to develop a regime uh, for judicial review of agency interpretations of their statutes. How does Chevron measure up in your view? Well, I think Chevron could be interpreted to measure up fairly well under these four values. The, the values were, you know, rule of law values and constitutional values, the need for stability in the law and predictability in the law, and a process whereby the public participation is invited when agencies interpret statutes. I think Chevron could be interpreted to incorporate those sorts of values with a little tweaking. I think that an extreme version of Chevron, such as the one that Justice Scalia advocated for up until close to his death in 2016, uh, which suggested that Chevron applies any time a statute that an agency administers requires interpretation. I think that sort of extreme approach uh, does not measure up well against those values, but uh, the court in the pending cases, which will reconsider the Chevron decision, uh, could uh, trim the doctrine in certain ways or clarify the doctrine in certain ways so that those values would come to the fore and would be uh, reasonably well supported by the two-step Chevron approach. Thank you, Professor. Uh, We'll we'll have to leave it there uh, and go to a break. Um, uh, We appreciate the education on the Chevron doctrine. And when we come back, we'll talk to Fernando LaGuardia, the General Counsel of AmeriCorps, to give us the agency perspective on Chevron. You're listening to Between the Lines on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Between the Lines, everyone, on the Federal News Network. We're talking about one of the major set of cases in administrative law, known collectively as the Chevron Deference Doctrine. We're joined now by the General Counsel of AmeriCorps, Fernando LaGuarda. 
General Counsel LaGuarda is a recognized expert on administrative law and regulatory policy. Prior to AmeriCorps, Mr. LaGuarda was the director of the Law and Government Program at American University's Washington College of Law. And Mr. LaGuarda is a member of the ACUS Council and a good friend of ACUS. Welcome to the show, Mr. LaGuarda. Andy, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Fernando, from your perspective as an agency general counsel, what's your view on the Chevron Doctrine? Well, Andy, um, thanks for the question. Uh, Speaking for myself and not for AmeriCorps, ACUS, or the federal government, I think Chevron benefits the rule of law in three ways. First, it's a useful analytical framework. It's easy to follow. The two-step, relatively predictable, and clarifies the role of courts and agencies in statutory interpretation. Second, Chevron reinforces to agencies the importance of understanding their enabling or organic legislation. And that understanding bolsters agency expertise. And third, uh, Chevron affords confidence through a deference regime to agency interpretations of their rulemaking authority under their organic legislation. Okay, thank you. Now, I know AmeriCorps doesn't uh, do a lot of rulemaking, and and we've talked about that uh, between us in the past. But still, from from your perspective, uh, do you confront um, uh, Chevron issues, and uh, uh, how often do they come up? Um, Our rulemaking hasn't been challenged, uh, to my knowledge, um, and therefore, um, in front of the courts, no. Um, we use Chevron internally, uh, frequently though, because uh, as I said, um, it's an important way to think about uh, when we are doing rulemaking, those steps. You know, do we have authority? Are we thinking about um, ambiguity correctly? In other words, are we acting in a place where there is ambiguity um, and Congress has given us uh, some room? to interpret um, uh, elastic provisions of our, uh, or, you know, broader provisions of our authorizing uh, legislation. How would a court look at that? The other part, um, I think that's under-researched and under-examined is uh, agency to agency uh, or instrumentality to instrumentality of the government. That there is a fair amount of interaction between agencies, between agencies and OMB, uh, inside the executive, across agencies. And I think that the the Chevron uh, framework is useful for agencies thinking about their interpretation of their organic uh, enabling legislation, where they have sort of the most authority, uh, where they have uh, rule of law um, powers, and even where they don't have um, uh, sort of rulemaking or law, quasi-lawmaking authority um, that we defer to each other when we are considering statutes that have application across government but are in our own uh, authorizing uh, legislation. Okay, I see. A legal scholar from Yale who also was, like you, a, a general counsel believes that, and he's written, that agencies are more aggressive in interpreting uh, their authorizing statutes uh, in more novel ways than under Chevron than they might otherwise be. 
Uh, do you um, do you find that? Do you agree with that? What's what's your reaction? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Andy. I think novelty is an interesting critique. Um, maybe that's a way of saying that statutes are written or or should be written or should be interpreted to be written as uh, inflexible uh, somehow. I, I don't know that uh, that I uh, I, I don't know that that um, research uh, empirically um, could bear up if um, the reality is that um, statutes are written by the Congress that writes them to be applied in a whole range of uh, circumstances that um, have not been uh, thought of in advance. And that's the whole point. Um, and so novelty could be more about the facts uh, than about the interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so I think the critique, it definitely could make for good reading, but I'm not so sure that it's a critique in the sense that agencies are being experimental as opposed to meeting the facts as they find them, which is what Congress expects them to do. I see. Okay. Um, we've only got two minutes left, so I've only got uh, two more questions uh, for you. Uh, one along the same lines as, as the last one. Uh, some people have found that uh, the affirmance uh, rate um, uh, from, by uh, federal courts has um, increased un, under Chevron, that the, the agencies are getting a, are winning more often than they, they did before. Um, what do you think? I think those studies could show just as well that agency decision making has gotten better or more well reasoned or more authoritatively justified, um, which, you know, could also be the case. So there could be a correlation causation um, uh, problem with those studies. Um, I think it's difficult. uh, Increased affirmance compared to what would be my response. I see. So other other variables uh, could explain that. It's always been the courts, of course, and correct me if I'm wrong, were, were thought to have the authority to say what the law is. Professor Tom Merrill, who um, we heard earlier on this uh, show, uh, wrote that Chevron has validated a, quote, dramatic shift in power in our system of constitutional government, end quote. Um, uh, th- that is, he means that the doctrine has transferred authority to interpret vague agency statutes from courts to agencies. Do you agree with him? Well, no, not necessarily. I think courts do say uh, what the law is. I think um, post Chevron and especially post uh, now the the rise of the major questions doctrine, agencies interpret where Congress has provided them room to do so. Um, but the dichotomy between interpreting and applying or executing a law is a great model in theory. But the modern economy isn't going to work if if those who apply the law have to ask courts about every ambiguity. Laws aren't written uh, necessarily that way, if they ever were. Uh, I think um, certainly in the early days of the country, there are examples of cases from the court where um, agencies are given authority to do interpretation. So I think that that dichotomy is a little bit uh, of of a um, straw house. all the all the branches of government should be working to make government workable, um, and I think uh, Chevron helps in that regard. I'm going to move ahead a little bit to um, uh, recent years. 
the, the Supreme Court has uh, shied away in recent years, it seems, from applying the Chevron doctrine and seem to be replacing it with the major questions uh, doctrine. Um, are, are there cases before the court this term that, that present the opportunity to make that change clear? Uh, and if so, what would you like to see the court do and would agency behavior change on the, under the ma- major questions doctrine? And real quick, please, we only have a minute left. So I think of major questions as a, a, a sort of further check on Chevron at step zero, as we were talking about before, not as a replacement. I think major questions was originally the elephant in the mouse holes canon. And in that sense, it's useful. Um, there are strong theoretical and empirical um, arguments for, for using it. The, uh, the Gonzalez case, uh, the assisted suicide case, and the Brown and Williamson tobacco, uh, FDA tobacco case are good examples, I think, of the elephant in the mouse hole canon. On the other hand, I'm wary about an ever-expanding doctrine about clarity on major questions that returns the courts to the days of Church of the Holy Trinity and the argument that certain outcomes are just not possibly what Congress intended because of the nature of the country or the importance of the policy or other arguments that are really activist in nature, and I don't think courts would want to go there. I see. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, Fernando. Thank you so much uh, for that insightful um, perspective uh, from from an agency. And uh, we'll be right back with Professor Kristen Hickman uh, to talk about uh, the Supreme Court cases uh, pending uh, right now, a little bit more. And um, this is uh, Between the Lines with ACUS on the Federal News Network. Lots more ahead. Welcome back, everyone, to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference. We're talking about the Chevron Doctrine with Professor Kristen Hickman. Kristen Hickman is professor of law at the University of Minnesota and has also taught at the Harvard and Northwestern Schools of Law. She's a recognized expert in administrative law and is widely published. In fact, she literally wrote the book on administrative law called The Administrative Law Treatise, along with Richard Pierce. She's a longtime friend of ACUS, serving as a public member, committee chair, and now a senior fellow. And we're very happy to have her with us. Welcome to Between the Lines, Professor Hickman. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you. In recent years, Professor, the the United States Supreme Court has seemed to keep its uh, distance from the Chevron Doctrine, uh, applied it at arm's length. What can you tell us about the current state of the Chevron Doctrine at the court? Sure. You're right that the Supreme Court hasn't granted Chevron deference to any agency interpretation since 2016 in a case called Quozo Speed Technologies versus Lee. The court has cited Chevron several times. Dissenting opinions occasionally have criticized the court for not applying Chevron deference. Some of the justices, most notably Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, have written concurring or dissenting opinions on various occasions, criticizing Chevron and calling upon the court to reconsider it. For the most part, though, the court has simply avoided Chevron altogether by deciding statutory meaning for itself using traditional tools of statutory interpretation. Now, you could argue that by doing so, the court is merely deciding cases at Chevron step one, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, rather than Chevron step two. 
After all, under Chevron step one, if the court decides that the meaning of the statute is clear, then there's no need to consider deference at Chevron step two. So if you're going to resolve statutory meaning for yourself and declare the meaning of the statute clear, you have no need to cite Chevron and possibly prompt yet another ancillary opinion from Justice Gorsuch or Justice Thomas criticizing Chevron. But the court's failure to cite Chevron at all has given rise to assumptions on the part of many that Chevron is dead, even though agencies continue to claim and receive Chevron deference from the Federal Circuit Courts of Appeals. The court has uh, cases pending now, this this exact term, that give the court the opportunity to uh, revisit Chevron directly. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the cases that are pending? Sure. The two critical cases in this Supreme Court term regarding the Chevron Doctrine are Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo and Relentless versus Department of Commerce. The Supreme Court granted cert in these cases expressly to consider what to do about Chevron. Both cases involve the same set of regulations issued by the Department of Commerce and the National Marine Fisheries Service interpreting the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act of 1976. Under that statute, the federal government requires fishing industry participants to develop and abide by fishery management plans. And the way the government enforces those fishery management plans is by putting federal inspectors on fishing boats. No one in these cases questions these aspects of the regulatory scheme, but in this instance, the agencies adopted a regulation interpreting the statute as requiring the fishing industry participants to pay the costs for the federal monitors on their fishing vessels. Um, You know, in other words, to pay for their own regulators. So in Loper Bright, the D.C. Circuit granted Chevron deference to the regulation, saying that although the act may not unambiguously resolve whether the service can require industry-funded monitoring, the service's interpretation of the act as allowing it to do so is reasonable. In Relentless, the First Circuit also arguably deferred to the regulation under Chevron. The Relentless Court said that the regulation did not exceed the bounds of the permissible, but the court declined to classify its conclusion as a product of Chevron Step 1 or Step 2, saying only that at the very least, the agency's interpretation was certainly reasonable. The Supreme Court granted certiorari in Loperbright last spring. The briefing in Loperbright was almost done when the court granted cert in Relentless in October. The court ordered expedited briefing and relentless so that the two cases can be considered together in January. Justice Jackson is recused from Loper Bright, so the generally accepted wisdom on why the court granted cert and relentless is so that Justice Jackson can participate in the court's resolution of Chevron's fate. And can you tell us what the arguments, the main arguments that are being made on both sides? Sure. So... First, let me just say that the question presented in Loper Bright and Relentless is whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least clarify that statutory silence concerning the controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. So the prospect that Chevron could be overruled has gotten the most attention And most of the briefs have focused on uh, this question of whether the court should overrule Chevron. 
There are several arguments that are made in favor of overruling Chevron. Um, among them, arguments that Chevron violates the separation of powers, um, as well as various normative arguments about the role that Chevron plays in influencing agency action. I think one of the most critical arguments against Chevron deference has to do with the text of the Administrative Procedure Act. So Section 706 of the Administrative Procedure Act is the provision that governs the scope of review and provides standards of review for courts reviewing agency action. And it says that the courts should decide questions of law. On the other hand, it also then goes on to say that courts should set aside um, agency actions found to be arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion or contrary to law. Um, the Supreme Court has never explicitly tied out the Chevron standard to this language in the Administrative Procedure Act, prompting many people to say that Chevron is atextual and violates the Administrative Procedure Act, or at least is not supportable by the Administrative Procedure Act to the extent that the statute says that courts should decide all questions of law. And that's gotten a lot of attention. And I think, you know, maybe the strongest argument that the that Chevron's challengers have against the standard I and several other people in our academic work have actually argued that Chevron can be reconciled with the language of the Administrative Procedure Act between the language about courts deciding questions of law, but also the arbitrary and capricious standard. The court has often described Chevron, particularly step two, in arbitrary and capricious type terms and sort of recognizes that Chevron step one is about legal interpretation using traditional tools of statutory construction. But Chevron step two is really about policymaking, that at some point you run out of traditional tools of statutory construction and all that's left is agency policy choice. And we've always reviewed agency policy choice under the arbitrary and capricious standard. Uh, we'll see what the court has to do with these statutory questions. I think one of the arguments against overturning Chevron really comes down to stare decisis. We've had hundreds or even thousands of agency interpretations of statutes upheld under the Chevron standard. If you eliminate or overrule the Chevron standard, you would bring about a lot of legal uncertainty as to the possible validity or continued validity of those prior cases and those interpretations of statutes that people have come to rely on. We're going to have to leave it there, Professor. Thanks for catching us up, and uh, we'll be watching the Supreme Court with renewed interest this term. Thank you to all of our guests for sharing their expertise on the Chevron Deference Doctrine. In our next episode, we will talk about identifying and reducing administrative burdens. And in future episodes, we'll explore other current topics of interest in administrative law and procedure. For more information, go to our website at www.acus.gov. For now, thank you all for listening, and I hope we pass the audition. 
You've been listening to Between the Lines with the Administrative Conference of the United States on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and all of our past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 